When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. On the special bonus interview episode of Download, we talk with former Ain't It Cool News writer Outlaw Vern about Steven Seagal, the truth behind Vern's criminal past, and some of the greatest straight-to-video action films ever made. All of this and more. So let's get ready to dial up, log on, and download. Welcome. Welcome to Download. I'm Joe Scott. Uh, We have another bonus interview episode today uh, where we will be talking with Outlaw Vern. I don't have his real name to share with you because he doesn't want people to call him anything but Vern. But aside from his work on Ain't It Cool News, as well as his own blog, which you can find at outlawvern.com, Vern is the author of several books, including Seagology, which is about the films of Steven Seagal. And we'll talk more about him in just a minute, but we need to dive into a little bit of housekeeping here. I have an important update regarding the return of our narrative episodes. Um, As you probably know, as you've probably complained, we are on hiatus. Uh, I thank those who understand, Um, but I have new information that I needed to share with you folks. The hiatus was supposed to end on April 28th. Then due to some personal issues on our team that I'm not at liberty to discuss because, you know, it involves their lives outside of the show, we rescheduled our return to May 26th. Well, over the last week, um, a few members of the immediate and extended download family have contracted COVID-19, and I want to be as transparent as I can about this without sharing... (coughs) Whoa, sorry, and that's not COVID, I just have allergies, but... I just want to be uh, transparent uh, without sharing people's medical information. That's personal, and I don't think it's right to do. Um, But I just want to let you know what's going on. Um, And it's because of that that our show will return on June 2nd with the second half of the Anti-Social Network and the two additional episodes that will follow after that. And I apologize for these delays, and I hope you agree that when – The new episode comes out. It will be worth the wait. But uh, now on to our interview. It's real easy for people today to look at Harry Knowles' Blade 2 review and to say things like, there were no good writers who worked for Ain't It Cool News. But if you actually spent time on that website during its better days, you know this isn't true. There are actually a lot of great writers. And one of them was a person who called himself Outlaw Vern. We'll discuss this in the show, but when I first heard about Outlaw Vern, he was being introduced by other people like uh, Drew McQueenie, a.k.a. Moriarty, as an ex-con, as someone who did time in jail and was cleaning his life up by writing movie reviews. And um, apparently that wasn't entirely true. Uh, We'll discuss the truth in the interview, but regardless, Vern is an amazing satirist. Um... He focuses a lot of his writing on action films, 
and specifically straight to video action films. And it's because of these two factors that he wrote a lot of reviews about Steven Seagal during what would definitely be described as the fat Elvis stage of Seagal's career. You know, he wasn't having a lot of luck with the studios on Deadly Ground. His uh, environmentalist movie set in Alaska uh, was not the hit that everyone thought it would be. It was sort of his vanity project. And um, so he was slumming it in the straight to video world. And, uh, Vern was there to pick up the pieces and uh, he wrote some really great reviews and they're hilarious. <laughs> and uh, in prepping for this review, I actually read the book that uh, compiles a lot of Vern's writings on Steven Seagal and adds actually new writings on his work called Seagology, where, you know, he really finds a thematic through line through most of Seagal's work and presents that in the book. And uh, as as I was rereading to prepare for this interview, uh, it was still funny. It still holds up. It's a great book. And um, Vern's actually written other books. Uh, he wrote a novel called Nike Town. He wrote another book of action film reviews called Yippie Kaye Moviegoer. It focuses on Bruce Willis, but contains other reviews as well. Then he wrote a second novel titled Worm on a Hook. And some of these books are out of print. But all of these books are available to purchase online, and I would recommend uh, that you do so, especially Psychology. It's just a really funny book. I think also it's it's a good book of criticism because it has a perspective. It has a point of view. Uh, one more thing before we start this interview. Uh, when I approached Vern to do this interview, which is actually the second time I interviewed him, I actually interviewed Vern uh, back when I was in college working for college radio and we talked a little bit about that um in our interview that we did recently but uh, when i reached out to him for this interview um there was a little bit of trepidation to do it and the reason is and i'll be perfectly candid is that um he wanted me to assure him that i would in fact be covering the allegations of sexual misconduct by harry knowles um as part of my show um, I think the reason is that he has friends who are upset that uh, I haven't. I assume they think that I won't. I want to assure those people that that is certainly not the case. Um, we will be diving into that. Um, we're telling the whole story. That's really the truth of it. Uh, beyond that, I want to cover the story of these allegations in a way that doesn't let everyone else off the hook. This includes... Everyone, myself, um, the Austin film community, the internet movie geek community, that includes a lot of people and probably uh, Vern's friends. Uh, and when I told Vern that, he said that sounded ominous, but cool. So yeah, we, we are diving to those allegations. We actually talk about them in the interview that I do with Vern. Um, and, you know, the other funny thing I'll say about that is that there are people who, if they don't like Harry Knowles, they are at least not anti-Harry Knowles. And um, their complaint to me is that the show I'm creating is an obvious hit job about Harry Knowles. And um, I guess I have people who think I'm here to praise Harry. I, there are people who think I'm here to bury Harry. I, I didn't mean to rhyme there, but uh, the truth is. I'm here to tell a story and uh, to demonstrate some of the lessons that all of us 
can learn and apply to our lives from that. Uh, and so that's really what's up. But yeah, let's go ahead and dive into our interview. Here is Outlaw Vern. With me here on the show is someone I've been wanting to speak to for uh, a long time. I've actually spoke to him before, and uh, we'll talk about that in a minute. It was a, it was a little different, but uh, he is a writer for Ain't It Cool News, uh, Outlaw Vern. How's it going, man? I'm pretty good. How are you doing? I'm doing good. I'm doing good. This is actually the second time we've done an interview, and we, we talked about this briefly online. You don't remember this, but... um. You released the book, Sagology, which we'll talk about a little later, but... um, I do remember that part. Oh, yeah. You do remember that you wrote a book. <laughs> that is good. That's great. But um, you told me that in order to interview you, that I needed to obscure your voice, like someone speaking sort of in shadows on an episode of A Current Affair, and to just uh, <laughs> kind of <laughs> really hide you. And And this time you said one of the the terms of our interview does not involve um, obscuring your voice. So I, I appreciate that. That actually took me a long time to learn that effect on uh, the editing software that we had at my college radio station. But um, thanks so much for agreeing to talk with me. And um, I guess one of the things we're letting people know right off the bat is that we're not going to share your real name. You are, you are here as Outlaw Vern, correct? Uh, yeah, we're just Vern. Or Vern. Okay, cool. Got it. I guess we'll start with just where your story began. You, your entree into the world of Harry Knowles and Ain't It Cool News, it, it kind of began in December of 1999. And it was this, uh, this obituary that you wrote for Curtis Mayfield. And, you know, Curtis had written music in a, a few movie soundtracks. But I guess what made you think to contact Harry Knowles and Ain't It Cool News with, with the request to publish this obituary on their site. I wish I remembered the specifics. Um, I think what happened was that Drew, I, I, I sort of got my start on news groups, Usenet news groups, yeah, uh, which have been mentioned in a at least one previous episode of yours. Um, and so I was writing on this current films news group, and I knew Drew through that, and. I, I think I must have been just writing something about Curtis Mayfield because I love, I love you know funk music and soul music and I, and I I believe Drew asked me if I wanted to write something about him for the site and that that's how it happened but I don't really remember for sure. Soul music is great. Like if you're looking for like the perfect playlist for any person's wedding, if you pick all soul hits, that wedding is is set. Like people are going to have a good time. Like you, you will never alienate a listener in any audience with soul music. I, I feel like it is the perfect genre. Yeah. Well, and if they are alienated, then you don't want them at your wedding anyway. So. Exactly. Like get the fuck out. I'm not here. <laughs> I'm not, I don't want to have a wedding with you because you don't even like soul music. You're obviously a monster. They call it soul music. Exactly. Probably because if you don't like it, you don't have a soul. So I guess... After that article came out, you waited almost half a year to write your second article for Ain't It Cool News. Uh, it was actually your second article, but your first movie review. And you did a write-up for The Ring 1 and 2, the, the original Japanese films. 
before they were adapted by Gore Verbinski in uh, July of 2000. And in that article, okay. hmm? I'm, I'm sorry, I was just, I didn't remember that that's what it was. So I was, I was oh. interested to learn that. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I'm trying in to the, piece it together. In the article, you introduced yourself. And I remember when this happened, you said it's Vern, one of, if not the most established web-based ex-con writers on the films of cinema in the past seven to eight months. And I guess for people who may not know anything about you, like before you started writing for Ain't It Cool News, like uh, you were you were doing some time in jail, correct? No, that's that is not correct. Um, so let me let me address that. <laughs> okay, all right. So let's go back to the news groups. Um, so I was writing on news groups, you know, I was a young guy in my 20s and I was writing on news groups uh, about movies under, under my other name. And there's, you know, all these people, a lot of, some of them are like known critics now, just all these kind of New York film buffs and different people. And we all kind of got to know each other through writing about movies on there. And so, you know, I'm this young guy and I'm kind of, figuring out what to do with my life. And I was really into, I had read a couple of biographies of Andy Kaufman and I was really into Andy Kaufman and Tony Clifton at the time. Um, and alter egos like um, Shakti of Digital Underground is Humpty Hump, you know, I like, for some reason I was very fascinated by these, these alter egos characters. And um, I just, thought it would be fun to start writing as this other character on the news group to see how long it was before all these people figured out that it was just me. And so <laughs> um, it's one of those things where it's like, when I explain it, I can remember in my mind as a young person why it was funny to me, but it's hard to like <laughs> explain it to someone else that that it, that it is funny and it makes me feel like kind of an asshole, you know? But- um, So you were never formerly incarcerated? I was not incarcerated. And I, <laughs> okay, um, mind blown because they've made several yes. references to this. There's actually an interview with you by what seems like a pretty legitimate online publication. And um, they, even they make reference to this, like it was something that was real. Well, th this is why it's a problem because I, you know, I mentioned Tony Clifton and everything. Like to me, it was like, I had this philosophy that it was completely I was I was dedicated to the kayfabe, you know. Like I, right. I was not I was not going to break character, and which is which is why I wasn't um, whatever weird hoops I made you jump through when you when you interviewed me at the time. Yeah. Like I I I because because also in my mind I was this like sixty five year old grizzled guy, and the reason why it was funny to me was that um, it was kind of it was actually inspired by a guy that had been in a class that I had who was. Who actually was an ex-con and he was much older than everyone else there and he was just hilarious because he would uh, <laughs> he would bring up like prison stories at the most uncomfortable time and it was hilarious and like um, like what he, would he say well some of them i don't even some of the more off-color things that i said in those early interviews if i mentioned prison were were like me remembering things that he had said um you know he would use slurs sometimes and like um 
but he would also refer to white white supremacists was how he said it. He'd say he would refer. He was like the the people you really got to worry about are the white supremacists. And uh, he, I remember this great moment where he wasn't wrong, by the way. No, yeah, yeah, yeah. But he, um, it, it was homophobic slur that he would use, and I would I, I wouldn't say that, but I wouldn't repeat that. But he. Um, I remember this time when this other woman in the class was talking about boys in the hood and she said something really kind of uptight, judgmental thing about like, I don't like those kind of movies. And he just blurts out, oh, a racist, eh? (laughs) (laughs) Just just out of, so like, I don't know, it's hard to explain, but this guy was hilarious to me. And so the inspiration at the time when I was writing on news groups was like to inject this exact type of, of chaos into my small little world of movie nerds talking about movies and just to see how people reacted to this guy talking inappropriately about, you know, like talking about movies, but then throwing in some like uncomfortable thing about what happened to him in prison or whatever. Wow. Yeah. I I gotta say, um, you kind of left me really here. Honestly, I thought that was why you were keeping your, your identity a secret all these years is to sort of obscure, um, your criminal past <laughs> that's well, not true at all yeah so so that's it's an embarrassing thing for me in a way because it was like at the time i was very proud of being able to stay in character and it you know we'll, we'll talk a little more about any cool news i'm sure but like like as you know everyone on there was like i'm a i'm a mad scientist i'm a robot or whatever they had these different personalities and everyone knew that that wasn't real so I took a amount of pride in the fact that I was writing in character enough that some people actually thought it was real what I was talking about <laughs> um, but obviously you can see there's like ethical problems there because I, I I would end up getting these not not very often but more than once I got emails from someone who was like in a bad situation related to this fictional stuff I'm talking about and asking me for advice and then I have to tell them like you know, like before I talk to someone like that, I'm going like, it's a joke. If they don't understand it's a joke, then then that's fine. But then in that situation, then I just feel like a total piece of shit because, you know, because I'm told like, oh, to me, it's a joke. And to you, it's like an actual it's problem. Your that you're life, going through. Yeah. So um, so that's one reason why why I dropped that over time. But I I there was a time when I when I wrote a column to kind of definitively say like that part of what I've of my story is not true but obviously it didn't you know you you hadn't heard about it so obviously it didn't get across to everyone so so I apologize for any so I very much sometimes there, there was always part of me that when I would go to any cool news I was always having to parse what was real and not real and you're right I definitely missed the article you wrote where you revealed in fact that you were yeah well that was that was post any cool news so Oh, it was yeah. Well, you know, yeah. <laughs> I guess, I guess there's a good reason then why I missed that. But yeah, yeah, I was unaware. So I guess my question for you now is, um, why have you chosen to remain as Vern and not to, uh, not to unmask, not to show people uh, who the other person is in this uh, sort of vigilante film criticism that you do? <laughs> I guess it's just kind of like a long. And if you look at those, some of those early reviews, it's it's really more of a joke than it is a review. Yeah. And then and then as I 
as I go along, I got more serious about it. And I, I would like to think I got a lot better at it. And I became, they became much more, um, you know, I've definitely changed and grown over the ridiculous number of years since I started writing as Vern. And I, I've, it became, it started out as being, these are the, these are my tastes, but I'm kind of filtering it through this character of Vern. And then as it evolved, it became, it's mostly me. There's certain things that I, I pretended that I wasn't into certain nerdy things just to kind of like not fit in with the ain't it cool people. Like <laughs> um, they, uh, you know, like everyone on there was trying to prove that they knew everything about comic books and and that kind of stuff. And I didn't know as much as them, but I, I do know some stuff, but I would pretend to know none at all. And that was like <laughs> one of those things that, amused me the, the, and no one else that like I would say comic strip instead of comic book and people get legitimately mad at me and yeah. I'd be and after a while I'd be like you know in the in those days it, every, comic books comic book movies weren't so dominant and so I would to in my mind it's like don't you understand I'm reviewing every fucking comic book movie that comes out and getting excited about it <laughs> but just because I say I don't like comic books then you you believe that that's true even though I'm you know so that, that, you know, that's one of those things where it's like only funny to me and nobody else. But so anyway, as I kind of got off track there, but, you know, no, so as, yeah, so eventually it's like, you know, as of years, many years ago, I, it's, I'm basically just myself, you know, I'm even talking about like, you know, I wrote pretty open things about my parents dying and stuff like that. And it's all, that's, that's all completely me. But I think just by being sort of a secret identity all those years, I, it sort of created this, it's kind of like a better version of me where I can be more confident and more, um, more, uh, you know, it's like, <laughs> I don't know. It's hard more your authentic self. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it, it really, I, re I really do feel that way. And so. Well, it uh, reminds me, I'm, a, I'm friends with this musician. Um, I'm friends with this band uh, called Future Islands. And the lead singer, Sam, he was in another band before he was in Future Islands called Art Lord and the Self-Portraits, where he pretended to be this like German expressionist artist. And he really used this to kind of tap into sort of an elevated voice, an elevated persona. But then when he transitioned mm -hmm. to his new band, he was just himself, but he maintained that same elevation. And so maybe, maybe in some ways on an artistic level, that's what you were attempting. Yeah. Yeah. I, I relate to that. And I, and there's also just the, the practical, practical part of it that just people know me as Vern. And so I, to like start using a different name is kind of like hobbling myself in a way. But um, I think I, the thing that really, that really changed a lot of this for me is that I, I, I'm also like, you know, pretty shy and stuff. And, and I, I, so it, even though it was, it lost me a lot of opportunities, I still was very happy with being completely secretive about everything. Yeah. And um, the thing that really, I wish I, I wish I had looked into which year this was, but several years ago, um, I was contacted by uh, uh, Phil Blankenship, who at the time was, was at the doing a thing at the Cine family in, in LA. Yeah. And he had put together this this uh 
four film uh, Steven Seagal movie marathon. And he and they were they were able to fly me there to host it with him and Jeremy Smith. And uh, and they turned it into like a book signing for me and stuff. And basically, like when he when he at the time, I had never shown my face and he had never done anything <laughs> publicly as Vern. And but when he explained it, what it was, I'm like, how the fuck do I say no to that? I obviously couldn't. And so um, so I did it. And it was honestly, I for real, it was like the best day of my life other than when I got married. And it was like, it was, it was not only because it was an amazing event, but it was just kind of like life-changing for me because I was kind of at a low point mentally I think maybe in my life and it was like you know I've been doing this for so many years and I'm I'm very proud of what I've done but like you know most normal people don't know what the fuck it is that I do and <laughs> I don't I don't you know I work a day job I don't make a lot of money or anything and just like just for for them to do that for me and to see all these people like being like ridiculously appreciative of me and treating me as like a celebrity almost it was like um it seriously like changed a lot in my in my confidence in myself and my and my my outlook about my life and everything. So like, well, so I'm, I'm very grateful to that. I think of Phil as a saint for having done that. It's yeah, amazing. and Jeremy and Jeremy, Jeremy's great. Well, you know, I mean, because I gotta say, in my mind, I, I having believed the myth of Vern. Um, you know, we're talking on Zoom. You've got your camera on. I, I won't describe what you look like, but you know, in <laughs> I, my I look mind, like Lee Marvin. Yeah, you don't look like Lee Marvin. You don't look grizzled. You don't look like you're 78 years old. You you look like you're about um, half as young as I am. And uh, yeah, like uh, just a, a regular person. You're not missing an eye or anything. Like, um, Yeah. Well, what, did anyone have sort of uh, a dissonance when they met you and they saw you as opposed to whatever they imagined you would be? Yeah, but they, you know, they joked about it, you know, they wasn't, I don't, nobody told me if they were super disappointed by it, but, but, and they, and they kind of, I think I said, I made some joke about to tell everyone that I looked like, like Chris Christopherson or whatever I said. And, I, <laughs> <laughs> and then, uh, so since then I, that was the other thing is that that really helped me to kind of let go of a lot of the secrecy stuff. So, so um, you know, I started, I've done a lot of podcasts and stuff now and, and I don't worry about it. And it's honestly, it's not, it's not like a Batman or something. If somebody found yeah. out my name, I wouldn't, or where I, if someone found out where I worked or what my name was, I wouldn't really care that much, but it just, I just feel like I don't want to put it out there. You know, I just want yeah. to be Vern. And, and then the, the last part of it is just that I really do have people that have been reading me for like 20 years on my website. And I, and I, even the podcast part, I felt kind of bad about because I, I'm like, I feel like they have this voice in their head and it's kind of like, you know, Calvin and Hobbes never made a cartoon because Bill Watterson didn't want people to hear a voice of, and associate it with, with what they sounded like, you know, it's, it's, sort yeah. of like, that. it's like, like, I don't want to ruin that for people, but it's like, I gotta, I can't hold myself back too much. So, yeah. So one of the reviews I wanted to talk about was uh, this review that you wrote for the movie American Pie. <laughs> and, you this know, is, this is horribly embarrassing, but I'm going to say, don't be embarrassed. <laughs> so, you know, a lot of people made a, a lot to do of uh, 
Harry Knowles Blade 2 review. And, uh, you know, Drew McQueen himself described it as sort of scatological insanity. And I think you go there a little bit in your review, but I think that one thing that separates your review from the review, the review that you wrote for American Pie from the review that Harry wrote for Blade 2 is that there's a point. You get to a point. You, you sort of hit an overall message and an idea as opposed to just comparing it to a lot of these sort of bodily graphic details. And it's a, a very funny review too. And it opens with a great line where you say, what this movie is about is pie fucking. There's a kid who fucks a pie in it. There's also a guy who fucks a grapefruit, apparently, but you don't see that. But this guy fucks a pie. And I'm friends uh, with a with a professional film critic named Craig D. Lindsay. And one day out of the blue, he said, one of my favorite reviews of all time was uh, this review for American Pie written by Outlaw Vern. And I was like, oh, you mean the guy from Ain't It Cool News? He didn't even know you wrote for Ain't It Cool News. He just followed your blog. He said, yeah, it's one of the best reviews ever. It, it, and the, the thing that he liked about that review was that it kind of kicks the bullshit right out of the film. Like, I think a lot of people were really, when the film came out, a lot of people sort of regarded it very positively. You're like, oh, what a great movie. You know, it's a, a great movie about sex. It's so funny. And the, the people are so cute and likable. And, um, you know, it, you kind of hit a point. The movie isn't really about sex. It's about this kind of weird, depraved kid. Uh, the, the main kid played by Jason Biggs is, um, you know, aside from having sex with a pie, you know, he's videotaping a woman with his web camera as he's like secretly broadcasting it to all of his friends while he's trying to have sex with her. Like he's committing a horrible crime. Like there's, he would go to jail for that. Like it, that's child pornography. These are kids in high school, but I guess, I think you also do this one thing in your review where you talk about Chris Klein's character, Oz, complaining that his girlfriend played by Mina Savari would only perform oral sex on him and, and how this was an absurd thing in high school to say uh, for anyone to say beyond that, you know, I don't necessarily view a lot of your criticism as sort of coming from a feminist lens, but you know, it wasn't a great thing for this guy to say to his buddies, uh, you know, just blasting all this information out. And I appreciate that you kind of call him out on this. Like, this is, stupid like if you know you're with your partner and they want to perform oral sex on you like great like don't like shit on people for that and uh i i just thought it was um very cognizant of what the movie was and and what in the time that it came out um long before anyone else you you saw american pie um as as what it was well that's that's very nice of you to say uh, that opening part does kind of make me chuckle but i I think you're giving me too much credit. <laughs> Honestly, it's like I, I was I was being this the character version of Vern from the early days, and I okay. was kind of trying to. I mean, I, I I was trying to say something a little bit, but I I'm not sure I was. I don't remember that uh, the camera part. And when you say it, I'm like I'm not sure that I did pick up on that being horrible at the time. Well, you didn't talk about that. To, okay. But, yeah. But no. but I do remember just kind of being amused at the idea of like. Um, it was more like a kids kids these days kind of thing, I think, in my mind of like this guy saying like I can only I can only have oral sex, and to me I'm like you know, 
you know, to many people's experience in high school, that would have been an exciting achievement, you know, <laughs> right. <laughs> was, was, right, was the joke I was trying to make. And so, so, um, and I would like to think, I hope that, um, I, I hope that I do write under a feminist lens as much as a man can, you know, in the, not in the case of this review, but as, as I got, as I got more grown up, because, you know, that, that, that is important to me. And, um, awesome. Yeah, you know, I don't know if you listen to Karina Longworth's podcast, you must remember this, but uh, you know, she's currently doing this whole season about uh, the erotic cinema of the 80s. And, you know, I, I don't know how it is for you, but for me, I grew up in a very repressed Southern Baptist household and, and community. And th what this meant was that I was surrounded by adults, in including and especially my parents, who were just really bad at talking about sex and so the way I learned about sex was from all of these erotic movies from the 80s, which meant that I also internalized the idea that sex was dangerous and that if you have sex, you'll likely get murdered by somebody or possibly be framed for a horrible crime. And I don't know where Karina's going with her podcast, but I think the end cycle of erotic 80s for me was these 90 sex comedies and specifically a movie like there's something about Mary or American pie. And uh, you know, just sort of in a way, but it's just like, it's just like when Leslie Nielsen was in uh, the naked gun movies, that was the end of him as a serious actor. And I, I think that mm -hmm. after the, all these crazy sex comedies, like, no one's going to take sex in a movie seriously in terms of mass audiences anymore. And I, you know, I felt that your review definitely sort of hit on just how absurd sex was presented in, in that movie and, and it kind of just ruined sex in movies. Like people don't have sex <laughs> like they used to, you know, <laughs> but um, well, I, I think that's a good example of how, um, like when I look back at the at the Anacool News time, especially later, that, that I sh it should be stated that that was I think that was on my GeoCities website, so it was not something right. that I put out there for more than like fifty three <laughs> people to read at the time or whatever you know. So, <laughs> so, but but um, when I was writing at Anacool News, and as I got you know more more sophisticated in my writing and everything, I did kind of see myself as being a force pushing back against things that I didn't like inside that website of like a, a lot of it, not just the the website itself, but like I, I was much more involved in the talkbacks, I think, than most of the other writers were. Because, I remember that. Yeah, because I've always, and to this day, it's like, to me, like writing the review, like I really do want a discussion with people. A lot of people say never read the comments, but like on my on my site, I luckily have somehow cultivated like a lot of like really smart and like cool people not not i don't have very many incidents with you know real toxic people and so i you know i i look forward to reading people you know talking back to me and debating or agreeing or whatever and so so in the talkbacks that was a part of what i loved is like i would i would go to like a, a early screening of a movie i would like stay up real late writing this thing and it would get posted the next day and then i would be like excited to like talk to the, the people but on there it was a lot of really 
there were there were smart people on there, which you tend to forget, but there's also a lot of like really hateful, you know, uh, you know, people just wanting to insult everybody and everything. And and so I I I would get into it with those people and I would I was very proud when I could like talk to a really horrible person and get them to kind of calm down and actually have a conversation. But also I would just kind of be an asshole to them yeah. back sometimes. So you know. And I remember a lot of like just misogyny and homophobia and and like, you know, anytime the topic of Spike Lee came up, you would get the worst fucking garbage people in there. Like, yeah, you know, like, so I thought I was people like people used to be afraid of Spike Lee. Like they thought he yeah. was like scary, you know, <laughs> of course. Now... But, I, but anyway, I'm sorry. The, the point I'm trying to make is like I saw myself as being like the more like leftist guy that was like trying to the more or enlightened guy that was like trying to do the right thing or whatever. Um, and then I'll, I'll go back and look at my old stuff and I'll be like, I was on the right side of a lot of things. And then I'll go, Oh, that part is a very, I was still like, I clearly was not the enlightened person that I thought I was. So I'll, I'll read that American pie review. And I'm like, Oh, there's no way I would write something like this now. And, and so like, um, I think it's good to always kind of, that, that's why I have I have an archive of like every review I've ever written on my on my website, and some of them are like horribly embarrassing to me to read, but I keep them on there because it kind of it's like accountability for me or something that I I I can remember like there was a time when, um, like I think one of the reviews that you mentioned that we might talk about I I think I might have used the R word in one of them, and yeah, um, yeah, and so like I. I remember a time when it was like, I don't think I used that in the most derogatory way that some people did. Um, I would use it sometimes as a compliment for a crazy movie or whatever, but I'm, I remember somebody wrote me an email um, and I wish I remembered who it was, but there was someone who emailed me and told me like, I'm, I, I work with, with special ed kids and, and I know that you don't mean anything when you use that word, but this is why it's, they don't deserve that kind of, you know, like he just kind of made a very, like, you know, talking to me very respectfully and made this argument and I never have used it since then. It was, and, and, and uh, it was kind of a, a profound moment to, for me that someone could just kind of like teach me that, you know? Um, I think the R word is a great example though of, of ways that we become more aware as a society because you would hear it everywhere, you know, they played it in songs, they played it um, on TV shows, like people said the word, you know, it was an oft repeated word in a movie I just mentioned. There's something about Mary or sort of a whole subplot. And yeah, people were just freely saying that word, but it, it is a very hurtful thing to say. And uh, yeah, I, I appreciate that you had that experience. Um, so you claim that the uh, direct to video or DTV beat at Ain't It Cool, which sort of puts you in a good place to take on a few things. One of them being the fat Elvis era of Steven Seagal, specifically his film Out of Reach, which is, which is where you use the, the R word. But it's also one of my favorite reviews that you've ever written. It was just a very funny description of a movie and how the plot is convoluted and makes no sense. But um. It later leads to your book, Sigology, which is uh, this 400-page tome I'm holding in my hand. Um, there isn't even, 
There's another edition that's even longer after the one that you have there. Oh, there's a second edition. <laughs> how, how many more were, How many more pages did you add? I think that uh, I don't know. I think there were like eleven more chapters because there were however many movies he had made between the the first and. <laughs> I'll have to track that down. I've it's got a, it's a it's out of print now because our the contract ran out. But yeah, but you sh- you can still find it for for cheap. Cool. So um, you know, in the introduction, which I'm going to have you read, you uh, you coined the phrase the badass auteur theory. And I was wondering if, if you could read uh, where you explain that in the introduction in your book. Uh, Okay, so I wrote, the French invented the auteur theory, the idea that the director can be considered the author of a movie, the one who puts his or her personal stamp on the thing and who reserves most of the credit and blame. But I invented the badass auteur theory The badass auteur theory is the idea that in some types of action or badass pictures, it is the badass or star who carries through themes from one picture to the next. I mean, I agree with the French about the importance of the director and they also make good bread and we're right about Iraq. But in the type of picture we're going to be discussing in this book, it is the star that connects the body of work more than the director. So it makes more sense to compare above the law to the other movies starring Steven Seagal and to director Andrew Davis's later Best Picture nominee, The Fugitive. I thought for someone who's sort of writing a lot of satirical film criticism that you did a great job with that description of sort of tying an approach together in, in a way to look at movies, specifically action movies. And I think that we see this a lot, like in the movies of Bruce Willis, he always plays a cop who's always like, you know, this great cop, but the reason he's great is because he breaks the law because he doesn't go by the book, Um, you know, uh, and you you identify a lot of qualities that sort of tie all these Steven Seagal movies together. One of them being uh, movies about enlightened men with shadowy CIA pasts, Westerners with expertise in Asian ways, Aikido, swords, herbology, and Buddhism, Various types of mafia uh, are involved and music, bluegrass, reggae, the blues, much of it performed by Seagal himself, the protection of animals or the environment and an out of control CIA trafficking drugs into the country. I mean, if you were to create uh, a Steven Seagal movie bingo card, you have identified so many of the squares there. And it is interesting that a lot of these things pop up and, I think we're seeing it right now with Vin Diesel, where I feel like every time they make a movie with Vin Diesel, it's clear that he gets some creative control and gets to sort of mandate what his character does and does not do. And so it sort of just, uh, I think it shapes the arc of his work. And I, I think it also makes him very difficult to work with. And I imagine it's not easy working with Steven Seagal, but I guess with, how did you sort of come to that realization? Well, like you mentioned, I sort of became the DTV guy on, on Ain't It Cool News, which was my idea, not anyone else's. And I just, um, and it was only because I had access to these video store screeners and I, and I was into that stuff. Like I, I was, I, I did reviews of like The Hollow Man 2, Wild Things 2, 3, and 4, and Roadhouse 2. <laughs> Because I 
there was something amusing to me about kind of the crassness of doing those sequels. And I just, I loved like trying to dig into them. And then also I like, you know, I love action movies. So I would, anything with Dolph Lundgren or Steven Seagal or whatever that showed up in the, in those days straight to video, I was like, I was going to try to get that screener and review it. And, um, and the Seagal ones I just found so fascinating because he was, he was doing a lot of them and yeah. they are, they were a lot, a lot weirder than what anyone else was doing at that time and like in particular the one that you mentioned out of reach was like like literally the plot of that movie is that he has a pen pal who's a little girl in europe and then she stops writing and so he figures out something has happened to her so he goes to europe to try to rescue her and it actually is true that she's been kidnapped by like white white slavery you know whatever you want to call it traffickers and they're going to like auction her off on the internet. And the bad guy is Matt Schultz from, from Fast and Furious 1 and 5. And he wears a white suit and he has a sword. And like he plays chess against the little girl to show how evil, you know, it's just a bizarre, bizarre <laughs> movie. And then, and Seagal is like, has really strange hairline, particularly in that one. And then also it was the first time that I, I believe it was the first time I noticed that a lot of his dialogue was being dubbed. And, and the reason was that he just didn't bother to come back for the ADR sessions. And so they would have to have <laughs> someone else re-loop some of his lines. And in this case, that included um, like entire entire voiceovers of his letters to this little girl are read by some other voice that sounds nothing like him. And you're supposed to understand that it's him, you know? So, um, so you know, I was totally fascinated with that. And there's another one called, um, called out for a kill yeah um and just that and then that one he's a he's a professor of archaeology who gets involved in some stuff and so like you know so it's both absurd and funny but also i was i genuinely i don't know it's hard to talk um he, he is he's really proven to be a really terrible person so it's it's i, I feel weird talking about like i was kind of standing up for him as this underdog character because he was such a laughing stock at that point to so many people but i just i genuinely appreciated him putting this weird personality into his movies and like and like whatever hubris he had was turned into entertaining movies for me by my standards and and he also had made some genuinely really great action movies before that yeah and um and then i'm sorry like you I've, i'm i'm kind of obviously i get kind of long-winded when i talk about no movies, you're good but, <laughs> but i i i what you were specifically talking about the list of things like I, I literally I probably told you this when I when you interviewed me a million years ago but I I, I literally ma had made a a chart on a on a big uh, notebook where I listed all the different things and then I had all the titles of his movies and then it would be like this one he does talk about the CIA he is ex-CIA or he's ex you know black ops or whatever and then this one he mentions the environment and he went you know whatever and it, and that really kind of grew into the idea of making a book because I thought, I thought um, it was genuinely interesting to me. And in, and when I wrote that review, I was very it's a very mocking tone. Um, but by the time I wrote the book, which I I, I hope it's a funny book, I, I'm trying to it's be hilarious. funny, but but it's also like I'm also trying to genuinely do like actual film analysis of these movies and treat them you know so at least mostly respectfully and 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 analyze them it's kind of, it's almost 
as much as as the book can, is tainted by if you know about Seagal, like um, I'm very proud of it, like because it's almost like a manifesto for me of my my feelings about art and popular culture and how to how we can how we can look at things that like you know supposedly low forms of art and 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 still see appreciate the the things that go into them and the the things that they say intentionally or accidentally you know yeah well you know like a private eye one of the things they'll do when they want to learn about someone is they'll dig through their trash and i think one of the things you should do if you want to learn about a society and the way people at large exist as a culture is to dig through its trash. And I feel like that you did take a very methodical approach to sort of just going into this dumpster bin of cinema and looking for a meaning and, and sort of stringing it together. And, and what we see in Steven Seagal and in his movies are a lot of these ideas that have sort of manifested themselves. And I think the January 6th riots, I think a lot of people sort of believe there's shadowy CIA conspiracies. And, you know, I think they have similar hairlines and similar body types <laughs> to Seagal in these later films. I guess you kind of like look for what you want to see. And so I was kind of reading those as more you like, you know, there was a time when we thought of, we thought of that sort of conspiracy minded thinking as being more not 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 as as uh, like right wing authoritarian as it seems now or or as, as right. extremist. It's like like the X Files and all that kind of stuff kind of taught you to be suspicious of you know you know like I, I I'm I'm very left wing but I didn't like what went down at Waco you know I didn't think this you know <laughs> and so I saw I saw Seagal as I didn't understand where Seagal was coming from really at the at time. I was kind of reading it in a more positive, positive light. And partly because he was so into the environment. And that's that's part of what is um like like really actually one of the probably the number one thing that most made me fascinated with him was on Deadly Ground, the one movie that he directed, which which is a big studio movie and like well made, but also absurd in in really fun yeah. ways. And it's like, um, and he makes, it was notorious for him making this big speech about the environment at the end. And because it's kind of so silly for an action star to do that. But at the same time, it's like, he was completely right in that speech. You know, like every, like the movie is, is actually, he kind of threw away all of his clout to do this thing that actually was correct. And everyone kind of made fun of him about it. Um, you know, he alienated the action movie audience because they weren't trying to hear an environmentalist message. They <laughs> actually wanted to see action movies that damage the environment. You know, they, <laughs> that, that wasn't what they wanted at all. Well, he still blows something up. By, yeah, he still blows up the the oil rig, but he says that it implodes so that the oil doesn't doesn't get into the water or whatever. So. <laughs> yeah, well, that was that was but, thoughtful of him. <laughs> But it's disappointing that he now is like literal friends with all these dictators and he supports, you know, people that are climate change deniers and stuff. It's like, he, whatever it was that I saw as positive about him is clearly not still reflected in his yeah. life that he lives now. So, Well, your book features an introduction by David Gordon Green. This was, uh, I think it actually came out before Pineapple Express. So around that time, he was still widely known for making small, low budget 
dramas like George Washington, which he filmed in my state of North Carolina and all the real girls. And I guess, how did you pick him of all people to write a forward for this book of all books? <laughs> uh, it was just a matter of, he was one of the few names that I had like a, a connection to. Um, I was, I was old friends with someone who worked with him a lot and was good oh. friends with him. And so I, I asked through, through my friend and it just, it worked out well because, and I mean, I'm a fan of, of his movies, like including George, like George Washington and those are great, great, movies. great films. Um, and so I, I, it was almost like, like a hunch based on the way my friend talked about him, what he was like. Because I think this was before all the Danny McBride stuff, wasn't it? Or I guess it was kind of early in the yeah. Because he's in Pineapple Express. I forget exactly the the timeline, but he it was kind of a hunch that maybe he would be into this sort of thing, and it turned out he was like he really actually was into Seagal movies and stuff like that. And so, and at the time he was trying to do a, a an action movie, like a more straight action movie than Pineapple Express, and that he told me a little about. And like, uh, yeah, it turned out it turned out. It's, it's totally random, but it turned out really perfect, I thought. That's awesome. You know, one last thing about your book. Uh, I think one of the funniest parts is uh, when you review Steven Seagal's energy drink, Lightning Bolt, <laughs> using the same critical approach that you took to all of his movies. You sort of ran it through the paces. And um, <laughs> I, I just one more artifact. <laughs> I have an unopened can. It's unopened, I, wow. I wasn't drinking energy drinks at all when this thing came out. And uh, my best friend gave me this can as a gift for Christmas. <laughs> and uh, it has remained unopened in my house. But um, I, I thought I, it was, go ahead. Oh, I was just going to say, I had a bunch of them that I had not opened. And then I had to move. And so I dumped them all out. And it was, it was pretty scary. So be careful if you ever open that one. <laughs> like just explosive or <laughs> just uh, like nasty looking goo inside there <laughs> nasty looking goo <laughs> or the the power sort because of, this thing sort of implies it has a lot of magical powers <laughs> on the can that uh yeah he himself went out on a journey to find all of the the herbs and supplements that are inside this stuff um mm -hmm. i don't know if any of that's true but what was the process of working for Anet Cool News like? Did you ever meet any of the writers in person? You, you mentioned Jeremy Smith, but did you meet anyone else? He's the only one I've really legitimately met, um, which would be, you know, many, it was years later and it was, um, but there were like two different times when I actually hung out with him. Um, otherwise, the only time was uh, Harry did a book signing in Seattle and I, introduced myself and you know had a brief conversation with him oh. and that was it yeah. <laughs> so I really I, yeah I really I, I also I once talked to Drew on the phone when they were um, trying to do the TV show and I would I, supposedly I would have been a writer on it or something if it had happened but um, I talked to him about that um, otherwise everything is only through email oh wow you know, I guess, how did you decide what articles to submit to them versus what you would put out on your own site? Was there like a thought process behind that at all? It was only if there was something that I could um, get access to before it was released, then I would, then I would write it up and send it to them. So 
I would go to preview screenings of movies sometimes, um, or I would have those straight to video movies if I had a screener. And the, in the case of The Ring, it was just like, I knew that that, or I guess I didn't know, I guess I didn't know about the remake at that time. I just, yeah. it was, it was something that was a VCD import that I got. And so it was some, you know, it wasn't widely available in the US. So I thought it'd be cool to, to review. You were ahead of the curve on the entire ring thing because uh, the American remake didn't come out in 2000 until 2022. So, or not yeah, 2022, I, 2002. Sorry. I reviewed that for the site too, I believe, like for the, the remake, which I was very up in arms against. And then I really liked it a lot. <laughs> you know, Gore Verbinski it's, it's is, is a good director. Like he yeah. knows what he knows what the fuck he's doing. I really yeah. uh, hate that he doesn't make so many movies anymore. You talked about your relationship with the talkbacks and, you know, in our conversations earlier, you said that you had three specifically infamous talkbacks. Like, I guess <laughs> what made those stick out among all the other talkbacks? Well, the infamous one was I reviewed this movie called Zoo, which is a, a very arty documentary about, about a, uh, a notorious incident that happened in Washington State here. Uh, where a, a man was was killed by a horse that he was having, having sex with. Yeah, and it's a it's actually a not the movie that you would expect. I, it was, you know, I'll never rewatch it, but it was a, <laughs> it was a positive review. It's a very arty sort of sort of a tone poem kind of thing about about the world that we were living in at the time that we're starting to realize of like where people can connect over the internet with people who are into anything you know and like, yeah i don't know it was an interesting movie but somehow in the in the talkbacks there started to there was a guy who has at least portrayed himself as being someone who who believed in zoophilia yeah and 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 we wanted to debate it with with everyone and so it was it was a it went on for days from what i remember him defending it and so so that was a weird one but that sounds insane yeah, yeah. And i then, missed that and, one okay so there was that one that was the infamous one then the the one that people still bring up to me all the time is uh i reviewed this movie called chaos and it was a a horror movie that i felt was just like a straight up ripoff of last house on the left and it was it was directed by this guy named david the demon DeFalco. And the reason for the for the nickname is that he also was like an indie wrestler. And he um, he one thing that was kind of more interesting than the movie was there was an extra on the DVD that was him inside the actual LA County morgue. And he was like flexing his muscles and doing this kind of wrestling type <laughs> type, type talk about um, challenging Roger Ebert because Roger Ebert had written a negative review of the movie or something. <laughs> <laughs> so you wanted to fight Roger. <laughs> and so there's literal dead and, bodies behind him. I I don't think you see the bodies, but he's in the actual morgue. And, and, yeah. he, and he also interviewed this this coroner, a guy who worked at the at the coroner. And I, I forget his name, but it's Weirdly, like many years later, he became, he, he's now kind of permanently entrenched in these right-wing conspiracy theories because he was there when um, 
when Andrew Breitbart had his, his uh, he, after he had died and they were, uh, I'm, I'm spacing on the word of what you, uh, when you, the autopsy. And, uh, and then later this guy died under mysterious circumstances. So there's all these conspiracy theories about this guy who, who was on chaos. Of course, I had no idea at the time that he, there would be anything like that. But um, so anyway, I reviewed the movie like super negatively in a way that I wouldn't now, but at the time I was very, you know, I was very negative and I, but I talked about those extras and, <laughs> and I kind of like mocked, mocked this guy. So he, so the demon and, uh, and the producer of the movie both showed up in the talkbacks and the demon was very angry and he, he wanted to actually challenge me to a fight where I had to stay in the ring for six minutes or something like that. You know, there was some, yeah. there was some rules. Like an endurance had. match. <laughs> yeah. and, and, uh, the, and the producer was like, yeah, we'll set this up. It'll be for charity and stuff. And I was like, okay, you know, number one, I've got this secret identity. I don't want to go out there and show that I'm actually a wimp. Like number two, this guy's gonna beat the shit out of me, you know. Like yeah. he actually, he actually got me, he got me good because it was kind of like cornering me where I couldn't really, I couldn't do like a tough guy persona in that in that case. But all all the talkbackers have like rallied behind me and like just completely mocked him and and um, and there was a lot of I don't remember all the details. There was a lot of crazy crazy back and forth going on with that. But but. Uh, the the ending to the story that that people that remember that don't know probably is that years later i um i i reviewed another movie that he did on my own website um called wrong side of town and it's kind of like an action movie and it was the first movie that had dave batista in it and um he's not really the star it's this other wrestler named rob van dam and I, I, I'm only familiar with like 80s wrestling, so I, I didn't know either of these guys. And um, in the review, I talked about how great Dave Batista was and how he should have been the star and the people that made the, made the packaging obviously knew this because they made him bigger on the cover than the other guy. And, um, and so like a while after I posted that review, I got an email from, from, from Dave, uh, not oh, Batista, wow. but Dave, Dave the demon the falcon oh wrong name and he, yeah <laughs> and he and he was like wow i'm i'm really i'm really surprised that you said positive things about my movie and like i'm glad you like batista because he's great i'm trying to i really think he could be a movie star and he, he ended up like being executive producer on another movie that where batista was the star called house of the rising sun i think it's called and, oh yeah and, yeah and batista like talks bad about that movie but I at least at the time I was like I liked it like seeing him as the main character and everything and um so anyway that's what uh the Dave the Demon is still kind of a notorious figure for other stuff that he does in the in the world of Blu-rays but just on my interpersonal you know my, my reaction interactions with him um it's got a positive ending to the art yeah. because he <laughs> he was like, and he actually, I'll see him now sometimes refer to that review that he was so mad about and he'll like recommend it as being a funny review. <laughs> so 
<laughs> so I feel uh, good about that though. He, he literally wanted to fight me and now he's, now he's okay with me. So yeah. Yeah. You got to kind of go on a whole journey with the, with the yeah. demon. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, that's cool. Oh, man. and then, and then the third and, and greatest one was that, um, when, uh, live free or die hard was, was about to come out, there had been a, an article in Vanity Fair or something about Bruce Willis, and it mentioned that the movie was going to be PG-13. It was the first time we got word that it was going to be PG-13. And so, you know, I at the time, it was like, seemed like a worrying trend of these things that we loved um, growing up as R-rated movies that we went to with our parents or whatever, you know, or snuck into. And now it's like, now we have to, we have to tone it down to make it PG-13. It was like, very worrying to me so i wrote this big editorial about it and um and then this guy um calling himself walter b in the talk back is like look i worked on the movie i think you're gonna like it Vern. it's like it's, it's not what you're worried about it's it's gonna be good and and he's kind of keeps posting and the more he's posting the more like me and other people in the talk back are going like this guy is either bruce willis or he's pretending to be or he's trying to sound like he's Bruce Willis. And um, I, I don't know, it, it went on for multiple days to the point where we're like asking him questions, kind of assuming like this guy might actually be Bruce Willis and he's answering questions about like, un, you know, under the, under the assumption that this is really Bruce Willis. And um, I don't know why, because usually you know, obviously there was a part of me going, I'm probably making a fool of myself talking to this guy and believing he's Bruce Willis, but I really did believe, like, I think this really is Bruce Willis. And um, enough people started to believe it that Drew actually posted, like, come on, you guys. Obviously, this is not Bruce Willis. If it was, we would give him a black box to verify him. And he was kind of, like, mocking us for being gullible. And then, and so I was kind of like, oh, man, he's right. I'm I'm a fool. And then then a little while later, all of a sudden, Walter B's posts have a black box on them. <laughs> and we're like, what is going on? And like, some, I don't know how he contacted and verified, but it, it, it for real was Bruce Willis. And another way that it was verified is that some people were mocking him saying like, you're not, you're not really Bruce Willis. And he's like, well, go on. I forget. It was like iChat or something. It was some Mac thing where you could have a camera. And um, so some some random dude, I don't know, I don't know who it was, but there was a some random dude who hooked up on his camera with Bruce Willis and he posted wow. <laughs> he posted a picture of him with this look on his face, like, you know, like a big smile on his face and Bruce Willis sitting there looking at him. <laughs> <laughs> so you summoned Bruce Willis. You know, we don't talk about this at all in the, the, the series, but, um, you know, among the people who wrote for Ain't It Cool News was Stephen, uh, was Sylvester Stallone. He did a whole series of articles uh, where he answered questions from readers uh, in promotion for Rocky Balboa and then later uh, his Rambo 4 movie. And then Bruce Willis followed suit. But I think one thing that happened was he started doing the Q&As with the, the readers and then he just disappeared. Like he kind of quit. <laughs> like, yeah, I'm not going to keep doing this. Uh, but yeah, you, you brought him into the chat. Yeah, yeah. It was one of those times where, and I mean, I, I mean, 
you can probably, I mean, Bruce Willis was like a hero to me since I was a kid, you know? Yeah. So he's like top, he's on Mount Rushmore for me. So like the, um, it was also, it was, you know, this is pre Twitter and all this stuff. And so it really, you know, we had a sense that there, that there were these ways to use the internet to talk to the people that are, you know, these superstars and stuff, but it wasn't, it was still very new at that time. And so it just seemed like some kind of crazy miracle that I had accidentally summoned him. I think aside from, aside from basically being the prototype for film Twitter, Talkbacks was in some ways a, a proto social media experience. Um, yeah. They didn't have like video that could run there or, or images or GIFs, but it, a lot of text-based memes started there and, and then, yeah, celebrities would start to show up. Your great big discovery as the DTV film reviewer for Ain't It Cool News was in 2009 with director John Hyam's Universal Soldier Regeneration. And it's perhaps one of the first legacy sequels, you know, where they sort of create a sequel. They bring back as much of the original cast as they can. They retcon other sequels that happened before it. And it has Jean-Claude Van Damme reprising the role from the Roland Emmerich and Dean Devlin film he did in 2000 or in 1992. And I guess, can you explain to our listeners why this film was so important to you, why you reacted to it the way that you did? Uh, yeah, there's, um, I mean, there's a whole, it was kind of like the, the prophecy come true in a way for me because it was, like we mentioned, I've been reviewing all those straight to video movies for years. And, you know, I when I look at those reviews, a lot of them, I have more of a mocking tone that I would do now. And I, and I kind of cringe at it, but, um, but I also, even when, even the ones that I was making fun of, I, I always saw them as being potentially like this, uh, kind of the same way that Roger Corman drive-in movies were, where it's like a lot of them are, they're, they're just, Kind of exploitation movies that are done for commercial reasons but then there there's sometimes can be a director who like really is trying to prove themselves and try to do something interesting with it and so i always thought that that straight to video movies should be that because in in those days um like the 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 model for it was like if you have jean claude van damme on the cover of the movie then that means you sell X number of copies to the blockbuster chain and the Hollywood chain and whatever. And so it was like, it was like pre, like instantly profitable movie, no matter what the content of it is. So, you know, that can be used as an excuse to do a crappy movie, but it can also be used as an excuse to make something weird that, and unexpected, you know? And so um, if you look at that review, I mentioned a lot of other good movies around that time. So around that time, it had really started to pay off that there was, there was Undisputed 2, yeah. um, which introduced Scott Adkins to the world, to, to the action world. He'd been in a few things, but that was kind of like his big breakthrough. And um, there was another one called Ninja by the same director, Isaac Florentine, and uh, uh, Blood and Bone, which is a, just an A-plus Michael Jai White movie that everybody who likes action movies should watch. It's an incredible movie. Um, uh, but then Universal Soldier Regeneration comes along and I, I, I remember I had the screener sitting around and I, I thought it was going to be interesting because Dolph and, and Jean-Claude were on the cover, but I assumed like they're probably not in it very much and it's kind of like a, 
you know, a cheapo thing where it'll be cool to see their faces again or whatever. Um, and I, rem I, I remember I was like, I put it on and I was like folding laundry <laughs> and I, I had it playing and I'm just like, okay, I'll put this on. And then like the opening scene that I kind of describe it in the review, how the scene just draws you in. It's like, I, I was just like, holy shit, this is a legit movie. It's this, it doesn't even involve those two stars. It's like these um, commandos come into this museum and grab this, uh, I forget if it's one person or two people. I think they grab two people and drag yeah. them into a, into a Jeep. And then there's this big like chase and shootout. And it's kind of shot like, like uh, this is around the time of like when I was starting to get mad at all the movies that had the camera shaking around because of because they had seen the Bourne movies. Yeah. Um, and this is like handheld, but like, you know, you can see what's going on. You feel like you're in the middle of this action, but but it's it's not disorienting and just totally kicked my ass watching it. And like, and then it just keeps getting better and better. It's like a really well uh, directed movie with um all these MMA stars used really well where they like they don't they don't have to do more than than they're capable of as actors but they take advantage of their physical presence and their um, abilities in a in a fight scene you know the fight scenes are done really well and it's and it's cold like I, I like the original Universal Soldier is my favorite Roland Emmerich movie but I don't really like Roland Emmerich overall i don't really like all the wackiness you know yeah and the, and this takes that premise and treats it very seriously where it has this kind of sad um kind of uh elegiac tone almost of like uh, that like these these soldiers are just endlessly going to be used for war even after they've died they're going to be brought back to life to fight more battles and and uh just the the direction reminded it's just you can tell he's really influenced by the terminator and alien with the sound the sound design and like oh it's just such a i just i just you know it was like everything i always wish for in in a i thought it was a lot better than most of the action movies that were coming out in theaters at the time and it was made just to exploit this old title on a straight to video yeah and so it just yeah I think, you know, as he gets older, Jean-Claude Van Damme, Jean-Claude Van Damme takes on more of the appearance and the mannerisms of Buster Keaton. Like he looks like an older <laughs> Buster Keaton. And I think that's actually fair because I feel like action stars have more in common with the movie stars of the silent era than like traditional movie stars today in contemporary times and in that their films were more visual based on the visual storytelling element so they had more of a global appeal like there's a reason they kept making all these steven seagal movies and it's because you could sell them in the middle eastern countries and across the world um you know he reached audiences that actors like george clooney probably couldn't at the time even even in his diminished state and i, I thought that that was uh I thought that was well, I, interesting. I think he's also unique in that he he's like the only one of those action icon guys that actually has become a better actor as he gets older. And a better human, and, I would say, too. I I hope so. I don't I don't know too. Yeah. It's probably best not to learn too much. Yeah. <laughs> in my in my experience. Uh, but he he he's done a lot of like really crazy, like 
what I was fascinated about Seagal that we hit on a little before is just that he kind of did the same character over and over again. Yeah. With slight variations and occasional accent attempts. But Van Damme, um, I like that in his later years, he's been doing kind of big swings where he, he's done some like really entertaining villain roles, um, including, uh, now I'm spacing on the name, but one of them is directed by the by Peter Hyams, the father of John Hyams, who directed Regeneration. Um, I forget, but he Van, Van Damme plays a villain in it and he's really funny. He's a vegan uh, A vegan? A vegan terrorist? Yeah. <laughs> and he, um, I'm a vegetarian. I don't like when they make fun of vegans, but I like that he uses it as a, as a, like, just a character quirk that he talks about his veganism a lot. But, um, <laughs> but, but anyway, like at the time of regeneration, what he really took advantage of is just, he has this, you can just see all this wear on his face that he just looks like he's been through so much. Yeah. And he it just made it. And same with Dolph Lundgren, like they both, they were they were known for being these like beautiful muscle men in their time, but now I think they've become super interesting just by having so much weather on their faces, and they just they, it it gives them a lot more character than they than they once had. Yeah. And and Dolph Lundgren in that in the in Regeneration, they like they only had him for. I, I later learned they they only had him for a certain amount of time because he had because I think he was doing the Expendables or something. And he, they just worked, they, they designed the part around taking advantage of the amount of time they had for him. And so he's mainly in this one scene where he fights Van Damme and it's just an incredible, like it really is one of those, I think of it as like, um, what was the movie where Judy Dench had the Oscar for just having a little small part where she- uh, Shakespeare in <laughs> Love. A, yeah, Shakespeare yeah. in Love. I think of it almost like that, where it's like he, or like Alec Baldwin in in a, in a, the David Bamet, uh, always be closing. Uh, Glengarry Glen Ross. So, yeah, Glengarry Glen Ross. I'm sorry, I'm spacing out. No, you've been writing movie trivia yeah. on me the whole time. Yeah, I love yeah. this. That's a better comparison. Um, you know, Alec Baldwin had that one scene. It's it's like that. It's like Dolph Lundgren comes in for this incredible scene where he has this conversation while he's with Van Damme while he's fighting, and it has a completely amazing ending to it that's totally like haunting and poetic so let me hit you with some rapid fire questions here all right here we go these are things i always wanted to know about Vern. number one which action movie has your all-time favorite fight scene sophie's choice here <laughs> uh, that's a tough one uh, one that comes to mind is is eight diagram pole fighter the shaw brothers movie um, nice yeah which i i there's a new blu-ray of it that i got and i have not been able to rewatch it yet but but i i love i love those kind of old school kung fu movies in it and it's got this it builds to this incredible climax where there's like this pyramid of coffins with people jumping out of it and they're, <laughs> they're using they're these these um these wolves um have been attacking them and they have these uh like wolf like wooden wolf dummies that they use to practice on and then the, those are used as weapons and i believe in the in the finale it's been a while but um that's that's one that comes to mind but i don't know there's so many there it's is one of the one of those things that's hard to it, choose it, only one if i had to pick i would pick uh the rooftop bite from who am i with jackie chan 
Oh, really? That was uh, a very well choreographed fight where he fought the two twins and the guy with the the really long legs could sort of stand one leg straight at like a full. Oh, <laughs> that's that's cool because I I rem I haven't seen that since it came out. I remember it had kind of a bad reputation, but I thought it was pretty good. So that's cool yeah. that you like it. Yeah. The story is kind of dumb, but that la that final yeah. fight is great. Um, which action movie has your all time favorite car chase? To live and die in L.A. is is definitely up there. Okay, so uh, that's a great one. Yeah, White Lightning for me on that one. Oh, okay, but if if Fury Road counts, then I just have to say the entirety of, of the, Fury Road. <laughs> the whole movie is a yeah. single car chase. So uh, yeah, I, I will yeah. allow it. Here's one more. Uh, which action star deserved a better break in his or her career than what they actually got? Uh, probably Mark Dacascos. Um, I love uh, he, he's he's really great. He's got one called Only the Strong that I really like, um, and Drive is one of his best. And that's one that fortunately got a really good uh, like Blu-ray and DVD re-release like a year or two ago, and so. I think a lot of people have been discovering it from that. And then around the same time or a little before that, he was in in John Wick 3. Um, he's, if you don't know him, he's the bald sushi chef that becomes the, the main villain. Um, he's a great martial artist and he's like, seems like a super nice, like likable guy. And um, he did some really good stuff. And I mean, he has a great career, but it just feels like he, he could have gotten more attention from the mainstream. And yeah. actually, I gotta say, Michael Jai White also. He's another one who's, who's like, you know, to to people that are into the stuff that I'm into, he's legendary. But it still seems like he it would have been nice that if he had had the chance that like Van Damme and those guys got to have a little earlier in, in the timeline, um, like Blood and Bone act, act um, like, I think it was actually intended for theaters, but then they decided not to release it for some reason, and it's. It's so much better than so many things that do get released in theaters. You're talking about the movie Blood and Bone? Yeah. Yeah. I think Michael Jai White had the bad fortune of starting his career five years too late. If he had started yeah. five years earlier, if he was five, somehow went back in time and started his life five years before it started, he would have exploded. Yeah, that's the that's the thing. Like Like people my age that are into action movies we love, Arnold Schwarzenegger, Jean-Claude Van Damme, and all these guys who, but they existed in the right time when that was that was exciting enough to people that they could make big expensive movies after they got, after they made their name. And yeah. that doesn't really exist anymore. Yeah, you know, I feel like it all got sort of replaced by uh, the comic book movies. Do you count comic book movies as action movies? I, I think of them as a separate entity. Um, sometimes they do have good, you know, like Birds of Prey had some great action in it. Yeah. Um, um, Shang-Chi, fortunately, they did a good job on. I, I was I was skeptical because I feel like Marvel's fights are not as great as their everything else about Marvel movies, but but they really delivered on Shang-Chi, I thought. Yeah, I thought everything was great in Shang-Chi till they, uh, they went to the island. If they made a version of Shang-Chi where he stayed in his in his hometown and just did the whole story there that would have been uh, amazing w once you go to the mystical island uh where you have one lesson bow and arrow school for uh nikki aquafina i uh 
That's it. <laughs> well, yeah, I like I like the kind of fantasy stuff by, and they're kind of trying to encompass a lot of different traditions of of Asian cinema in in one movie. But I agree that you know the but nothing tops the bus scene in that movie. Yeah, yeah, you know I. I really love action movies, but I, I do think that they've sort of been relegated to, you know, your beat at Ain't It Cool News, which was the direct video beat. And it was something that was almost painful for me because my dad would send me to the video store and he would want me to get him an, an action movie. And he was always angry when I'd bring home straight to video movies because <laughs> he he wanted something big budget. It was like, they don't make anything for you, man. Like, uh Sylvester Stallone said it all he said Batman killed those movies they don't exist anymore like you're you've got to make do with this Gary Busey film uh where they had a school bus full of (laughs) (laughs) marines and ex-cons crash into each other and and fight like that's it you gotta you gotta really just make do it's not uh it's not we got John Wick at least yeah we got John Wick and uh I, I really thought that was fantastic so your last review was for the film. Your last review for In It Cool News was for the film Undisputed Three Redemption. And I wanted to know why, after you posted that review, that uh, you never wrote another review for In It Cool News. Why was that the last one? Well, as, uh, as you talked about in, in other episodes, a lot of the writers at In It Cool were not paid, and I was one of those people that never got paid. And um, for a long time, it didn't really occur to me even that I, sh- that I should be because it was just kind of a lark that I was doing initially. And, and it was something that I did that was a lot of fun, you know? Um, but um, over time, as I, got, as I got a lot better at what I was doing and, and kind of had my own thing going that I, I felt like I had something to offer, um, I started to get resentful about it. And um, there was also a struggle with feeling like, well, I never asked for money. So why should they think to give me money? But then I also felt like I should have been valuable enough that they should have thought to give me money when I started to realize that they were making a lot of it from what the Harry was making a lot of money, yeah. as far as I can tell. Um, and then I, um, finally, it, it broke through when there was a, a writer from another site uh, was having a, a issue with his editor and, and left his site. And then Harry ran his coverage of a film festival that was going on. And he had, the writer had publicly said that, uh, that Harry, Unlike his previous editor, Harry was made sure that he was paid. And so when he, <laughs> exactly. So then that was when I was like, okay, I'm not, they had sort of been building up. And then I just felt like, well, if he's going to pay somebody else and not pay me, I'm not going to write for him anymore. And then uh, he, as far as I, I don't, I don't know if he'd noticed that I stopped sending in reviews because it was never discussed. It just happened. Yeah. Yeah, you know, I didn't, I won't be talking about this on the show. I won't be sharing these parts of interviews, but several of the people I interviewed, they talked about hitting this wall where they finally did ask to be paid. And a lot of them said that 
Harry had the same response to each of them, which is, why didn't you say something sooner? You know, and I guess on one hand, sure, that's fair, I guess. But on the other hand, you know, you're, you're employing artists, you're making money off of their work. Like I went to the site and I clicked multiple articles that you wrote because you, Vern, wrote them. And, you know, that you can see all the talkbacks generated by your articles to see that you, you did create a lot of engagement for the site and a lot of, uh, a lot of traction there. So I think that, you know, when you work with artists, don't, my advice to any leader in an artistic organization, whether it's a publication, a blog, a website, or a podcast, um, don't even give people the opportunity to work for free. You know, when you have people doing work for you on a regular basis, like, hey, reach out and say, hey, I need to pay you something. I can't pay you a lot, but it would be good to give you some money. And uh, I, I'm sorry that didn't happen with you, man. Like, uh, <laughs> you know, um, I, I feel like that's just something that hopefully people learn from and get better about um, because, you know, it happens there, but it still happens at a lot of places, places that would honestly surprise you because of how big they are and how they seem so mainstream. There's a lot of online publications that pay their writers nothing. I'm not going to out anyone. I'm not trying to do that kind of journalism, but you know, like you got to pay your writers. Like they're, they're creating the work. They're creating the reason people go to your site. We're going to talk about this. It's going to be a little difficult and you know, I want to first frame it around this one disclaimer, which is that with the accusations that I'll be referencing in a moment, there was no one who faced greater pain or, or a greater sense of loss or a greater sense of challenge than the survivors who came forward. But you know, a lot of your work exists within the orbit of Harry Knowles and Steven Seagal. And in 2017, Harry Knowles was accused of sexual misconduct, followed by Steven Seagal in 2018. And both of these figures loom over much of the work you did as a writer. And what I wanted to know was, how did it feel for you when, when you discovered these allegations and and I guess, how did you decide to move forward after that time when you, when you had these discoveries? Fortunately, I, I had pretty much moved on already. Yeah. Um, I had sort of lost, uh, lost faith in is not the, not the term for, for Seagal, but I had sort of sworn off Seagal before the worst uh, accusations came out just because of him like hanging out with dictators and supporting Trump and and then at the same time making a movie movies that even I had a hard time getting through <laughs> you know <laughs> so that's saying you know, a lot there, yeah there were there were two in a row where he was mostly sitting down and he, he learned that you could be become a sniper in a movie and then you could sit down for most of the movie but, <laughs> just sit in um, an owl eagle's nest and just sit yeah <laughs> so 
So I, I don't mean to make light of it, but I, um, and I, you know, I hadn't been writing for Ain't Cool for, I don't know how many years, but. Um, Nearly a decade. But I, yeah, but at the same time, it's, it's, it's uh, like, you know, like you said, it's, it's not about me at all, but, it, but as far as what it does to my life, it's like, I have these things that I have every right to be proud of that I worked hard to do. And, and then um, I always have to have this little asterisk next to them of like, by the way, I know this guy is a creep, but I was writing for that. And, or like, you know, what I, what I, what I wrote here is about this movie is, is what I really believe in, but oh yeah, by the way, this guy that did it is a piece of shit, you know, that's the guy that started in the movie, you know, it's just, it's, it's, um, it just, you know, it's, uh, like I, I was trying to say before, it's like, it's a real bummer, but it's also a byproduct of something that I know is, is, is good, which is that our, is, not not as much as we should be, but at least in some sense, we're taking steps towards bringing people to accountability for these things that that they've gotten away with for so many so many years. And you know, it's just not it's it's worth it for me and others to feel uncomfortable about about our our work relating to that. You know, in order to not just keep sweeping it under the rug and pretending that things have to go on because he starred in a cool movie. So we have to pretend that, you know, yeah. It's a... yeah, I think what's interesting and interesting is the wrong word, but one thing that's notable about Steven Seagal was just how many people in the industry were sort of aware and just sort of kept it passing forward because people were making so much money even during the straight video era. And I'll give you an example. Um, a friend of mine, one of his, one of his best friends, she works as a, a personal assistant and her previous client had, had passed away and she was looking for a new job and thought about applying to work for Steven Seagal. And then in the job description, um, they kind of made it all but all but spelled out that she had to make herself available um, in sexually, which, wow. you know, she's like, yeah, I'm definitely not applying for that job, but it sucks that it, that this exists. People know what's out there. No one's doing anything about it. No one, no one cares. And I, I, I mean, I'm glad now that at least people care. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I think something that I need to be self-reflective about is that, you know, like it, it, in my book, like writing my book and just just even before it, just people knowing that I liked Seagal, everyone wanted to tell me like any story they knew about him just being an asshole. And, or, or there's a famous story about him uh, getting choked out on a set and supposedly there's there's variations on it but everyone wants to tell you those stories and then so I heard a lot of stories about him being an asshole and then I also heard 
I also talked to a few of his like screenwriters that he worked with a lot and stuff. And they, and there actually were people that told me that they that he was really nice and they liked him and stuff. And you know, I try not to be judgmental of people, and I I try to like you know I like I liked that he was a weirdo, and I and I feel that I'm I I'm sensitive towards people that are like weird and get made fun of and want, want them, you know, I want to root for them to actually not be as bad as somebody says they are or whatever. Um, so, so like, you know, in the book, I kind of like, I, it's not a biography, so I don't really defend him as a person, but I, I tried to like look at it as, as an optimist of like, he's probably not a horrible person. And, you know, I just have to kind of, I have to, in the future, kind of wonder like, well, maybe I should be paying more attention to this stuff. Like, like the stories weren't about sexual misconduct, so maybe they were really toning down what a what a horrible person he was. But just like there wasn't a way that I could have known, but I don't want to let myself off the hook for like not paying attention. You know, part of the reason I reached out to interview you is because. About a month ago, this this gentleman said that everyone, every single person who wrote for Aid at Cool News was a bad writer. And, you know, I disagree with that uh, completely. There was some bad writing on Aid at Cool News. Harry Knowles did a lot of it. Um, <laughs> but I think that there were also some really uh, talented writers. And I, I truly believe uh, that you were one of them. And I, I thought one of the great things that you brought to your work is something that a lot of young critics could learn today, which is perspective. You had a perspective and I think part of it was informed by this persona you created of a, a hardened grizzled ex-con. But I think that, you know, through that fantasy, you created an approach. And as you got better as a writer, you, you don't even rely on the fantasy anymore. And that perspective is still there. And I, I just wanted to let you know that I think that you did fantastic work. And that's a huge reason why I did the show is to celebrate the work of some of the writers out there who were sort of part of this movement that was in many ways to film criticism, what punk rock was to, to rock and roll where, you know, like some of it's a little sloppy. Some of it's a little, it looks like it was just banged out in the middle of the night, you know, but I thought that there were still some really good things to come out of the site anyways. So I, I just uh, want to thank you. Yeah, thank you. I, yeah, some of it was terrible, but some of us were trying. <laughs> I yeah. wasn't the only one. There were some smart people there. You know? For sure, for sure. So um, what do you think will be the future of action movies. You know, we, we talked about Michael Bay briefly a second ago, his uh, new movie Ambulance tanked at the box office. It couldn't bring people in. And, you know, part of me wonders, is that because people are interested in action movies or is that because people are interested in Michael Bay movies? What, what's, what's your sort of take on the future here of a genre that you seem to really love? Yeah, it's, it's, a little worrisome because I I didn't particularly like that movie. Um, I like I liked a lot of things about it, but I had gotten used to his uh, action being more clear than it used to be in his early movies. And then in this one, I couldn't tell what the hell was going on with the 
camera shaking around and stuff. And so um, that bummed me out, but I, I still like, for reasons of like what you're saying, like I, I, I wish a movie like that could be a success because I love those kind of, you know, a movie that, an R-rated movie that's about action that is not about superheroes and doesn't need to be, doesn't need to cost $150 million and doesn't need to be about the whole world being destroyed, but just, you know, this one's a bank robbery. It could be a guy saving somebody from a, you know, a hostage crisis or whatever. Yeah. A diehard, a diehard situation. Like I love those type of movies. Um, I guess we still have, we still have Gerard Butler and Liam Neeson making a few movies. So yeah, for now, there's a chance there. Yeah. But I, I, it's too bad because the whole, the whole model of, um, straight to video isn't the same anymore because we don't have the the chain video stores like I was talking about like they don't they don't have the same built-in money just from making it you know yeah you have to find a streamer and I don't I don't even who knows how the where the money even comes from from a streamer so um yeah therefore a lot of the stuff they make has to be made at even lower budgets and lower shorter schedules and Therefore, the fight scenes are not going to be as good and the action is not going to be as exciting, usually. Um, so it's it's pretty dire for that type of movie. Yeah, yeah. I don't really see a light at the end of this tunnel, especially for the the straight-to-video Yeah, on, on the positive side, um, John Wick is so good and then they kind of established that 8711 stunt guys as as being kind of like the the cool way to make action now and they've they've done a lot of they've got that bullet train movie coming out and that looks great yeah and then they did kate which i thought was was good that was on netflix and nobody i loved nobody um so they're they're kind of and they also they also uh did the action scenes for birds of prey um or or worked on them so um at least there's that's a positive trend is this uh this really good company that knows how to choreograph fight scenes well and train the actors to do the parts of them they can and yeah yeah well Vern, i just want to thank you for uh taking the time to uh to speak with me and again thanks so much for your your writing i really uh going back through your book again just reminded me again of just how fun it was to to find this writing by someone who you were making jokes and there were satirical elements to your work, but I do think that you took action movies seriously and uh, you really looked for the ideas and sort of what they said about the people who made them, but then also the culture that enjoys them. And I, I really, uh, I really enjoyed it a lot. Yeah, thank you. That's That's my goal. Thank you for listening to my interview with Outlaw Vern. I hope you enjoyed it. And yeah, uh, next week we'll have another special interview. This time with Chris Gore, the uh, writer and creator and editor-in-chief of Film Threat, a publication that was incredibly, uh, incredibly critical of Harry Knowles and Cool News back in the day. But, uh, you know, beyond that, uh, he worked with Larry Flint, and uh, I just wanted to talk with 
Chris Gore about his life as a writer. I got to get back to work on these narrative episodes. So I'll see you next week. Thanks, folks. Thank you.